What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Mysteries Abound podcast, everyone. This is your host, Paul, and this is episode 111. This podcast is entitled Six Famous Places That Never Existed. Exorcisms are in vogue again. Evangelists like Bob Larson roam the country performing deliverances and profiting from gullible members of his audience that he convinces have demons in them. Similar deliverances are conducted in churches and by ministries around the world. Even the Catholic Church, which for decades kept exorcism in the closet, is once again bringing it out into the open. From the paranormal.about.com website. A story by Stephen Wagner. The Exorcism of Annalisa Michelle. Was the real Emily Rose truly possessed? In early 2005, about 100 Catholic priests signed up for a Vatican sanctioned course on exorcism, and today the Church's ranks of official exorcists has swollen to more than 400. No doubt about it. The interest in expelling demonic forces is high and growing. And when a film like The Exorcism of Emily Rose becomes popular, fascination increases, especially when it is promoted as being based on a true story. The same thing happened when The Exorcist shocked viewers back in 1973, a story also said to be inspired by true events. What's going on? Is there really an increase in demonic activity in possession of humans? Or are we becoming increasingly superstitious, blaming extraordinary psychiatric and physical ailments on the devil, much as people did in the unenlightened Middle Ages? The truth is there is no evidence whatsoever for the idea of demonic possession. I have been researching paranormal phenomena for many years and have never come across or read about one plausible case of possession that could not be explained better as mental illness, physical ailments or hoaxes. Psychic phenomena might be evident in some rare cases. There is good evidence for ghost and haunting phenomena, Bigfoot, psychic phenomena and many other areas of the paranormal, 
but there is no good evidence for demonic possession. If there is, I'd like to see it. As you can now tell, I am highly sceptical on this matter. And to be fair, I have never attended an exorcism or personally encountered a person thought to be possessed. But even those who cannot seem to produce the slightest bit of evidence. No film, video or photos of levitation or other supernatural events, although they are often claimed to take place during exorcisms. You've seen the videos and heard the recordings of alleged possession and exorcisms. Did you ever see or hear anything that could be regarded as truly supernatural? These recordings can be eerie and even disturbing to be sure, but that's the extent of it. Howling, growling, yelps, cursing and screams. Crazy, even frightening. But nothing a mentally disturbed or hysterical person cannot manufacture. Extraordinary strength is one of the most common attributes that exorcists describe for the possessed. It has long been known that the mentally ill and even persons under great stress can muster such strength. Anyone who has worked in a mental institution with highly disturbed patients can attest to the extraordinary sounds and sights they encounter there, probably far more terrifying than any supposed possession, but nothing supernatural. The exorcism of Emily Rose is based on the tragic case of a young German woman named Annalisa Michelle, who in the early 1970s underwent an ordeal that eventually led to her death. The details of her case can be found in such web articles as the true story of Annalisa Michelle. The controversy surrounding her illness, exorcism and death resulted in a sensational trial, all of which are part of the Emily Rose film. Annalisa was diagnosed by doctors as suffering from grand mal epilepsy, a condition of the brain that causes severe seizures. This compounded by other possible mental and psychological disorders resulted in hallucinations of demonic faces and voices. Her religious parents, apparently baffled and frustrated by their 16-year-old daughter's increasingly psychotic and often violent behaviour, chose to thwart the medical diagnosis and sought an exorcism. For years, the church refused to grant an exorcism. They accepted the medical diagnosis, finding no supernatural criteria to warrant an exorcism. There were certainly very serious and highly disturbing symptoms. Annalisa would mutilate herself, eat flies and coal, drink her own urine and physically lash out at her family. A profoundly disturbed girl. But there was no levitation, no documented telekinesis. Heck, even poltergeist cases have some telekinesis. Nothing whatsoever that could be deemed supernatural. Despite this lack of evidence, however, in 1975 the Michelles finally convinced priests to perform exorcisms, a whole series of them in fact, sometimes two rites a week. Certainly this only reinforced Annalisa's delusion that demons were inside her. And not just any demons. She claimed to be possessed by the spirits of Cain, Judas Iscariot, Nero and even Adolf Hitler, among others. Only for a short time did she seem to improve because of the exorcism rites. But soon the mental anguish returned with a vengeance. She stopped eating and her knees ruptured from the 600 genuflections she performed obsessively. Ultimately, the exorcisms failed. 
On July 1, 1976, Annalisa died of starvation, and her parents and exorcising priests were charged with negligent homicide and rightly convicted. The exorcisms failed because there was nothing to exorcise. Annalisa Michelle was not possessed. She required heavy-duty medical attention. Had her parents sought proper medical care for their daughter instead of seeking refuge in superstition, Annalisa might be alive today. With the improved medications and treatments now available, she might even be living a normal life. From the CoolInterestingStuff.com website. The unexplained mystery of Ada Constance Kent. The skeleton in the bedroom. Ada Constance Kent was a British actress who appeared in both stage and film productions. After a long period of working in London, Ada moved to the English countryside. Unmarried, she lived alone at her cottage in the small English village of Fingringhoe, Essex. In 1939, Ada was reported missing by a worried friend, who said she had not been seen for three months. She told police that she had searched the house looking for Ada, but did not find her. The Kent police asked Bernard Constable, a local policeman, to check the house, which he did with another person. His statement is clear that nobody, or no body, was in the house at the time of the search. Press reports state that she seemed to have just vanished from her cottage one summer's afternoon. These reports contained the following information. The door to the cottage was found unlocked. A supper tray with the remains of a meal was resting atop of the dining table. A copy of Romeo and Juliet was found open in a chair near the fireplace. Her coat was still on the hook. The police searched the cottage from top to bottom and found no other clues as to the whereabouts of Ada. In 1942, a close friend of Ada, George Winknoll, visited the cottage to track down his missing friend. He claims to have broken in through the locked front door searched the small three-room house from top to bottom. He checked under the furniture and in the cupboards. He noticed the open book and supper tray. Like the two previous searches, he found nothing out of place. And he too stated, it appears Ada just vanished and never returned. In March 1949, a bank contacted the local police regarding Ada Kent's account. The bank stated that they had tried but failed to contact her on a number of occasions regarding a number of large deposits made into her account. The last deposit had been made in September 1948. Police again went to the cottage and this time they made a shocking discovery. In the bedroom, laying next to a single bed, was a fully clothed skeleton. Next to the skeleton was an empty bottle marked poison. The police reports state that the cottage, apart from being dirty, looked like it had not been touched in a decade. They noted the supper tray, 
but not the book. The report ruled out robbery as they discovered jewels and money in the cottage. The Scotland Yard forensic report states that the skeleton is unlikely that of Ada Constance Kent, as it is too large and likely even that of a man. The case remains a real unsolved mystery, and no logical explanation answers all the strange facts. And also from the coolinterestingstuff.com website, The Ancient Mystery of the Screaming Mummy. Discovered in 1886, a mummy with an agonised expression on his face has long since been the object of speculation. This mummy has all his organs intact, which is not customary with mummification. Many interesting theories have arisen, though none have been proven right or wrong. Bob Breyer, a University of Long Island archaeologist, speculated that two parties were responsible for the mummy's agonised expression. One was the murderer, while the other ensured full preservation of the body, possibly due to a personal relationship with the victim. Other researchers and archaeologists have come up with theories ranging from cold-blooded murder to poison to being buried alive. A 2008 National Geographic documentary special investigated the possibility that the mummy could be Prince Pentuia, son of Pharaoh Ramses III, who was suspected of planning his father's murder. Ancient documents from the 12th century claimed one of Pharaoh Ramses III's wives was tried for conspiring to kill him due to her desire for Pentuia to take over the throne. It is thought that when this plan was discovered, she poisoned Pentawea as punishment and rolled him up in sheepskin after being mummified. If that was the case, the scream could have been due to the pain from the poison ingested. However, only a CT scan has been done of the screaming mummy, and it remains pure speculation as to whether the mummy was in fact Prince Pentawea. Less sensational theories suggest that the mummy's jaw is open simply because his head most likely rolled back after death occurred. But even that bit of realism is as good a guess as anybody else's. From the smithsonianmag.com website The Remarkable Story of the World's Rarest Stamp And this is written by Alex Palmer To see in person the 1856 British Guiana One Cent Magenta Better known as the rarest stamp in the world Is a bit like looking at a red wine stain Or a receipt that's been through the wash a few times The octagonal scrap of magenta paper, bearing a postmark and illustration of a three-masted ship or bark, isn't much to look at, 
but as the only known stamp of its kind, with a strange and peculiar origin story replete with colourful characters and record-breaking sales at auction, well, let us say that there is much more to this unspectacular stamp than meets the eye. Beginning June 4th, the exhibit of the British Guiana One Cent Magenta at the National Postal Museum in Washington, D.C., explores what the museum's chief curator of philately, Daniel Piazza, calls its long, most interesting, circuitous history. That history began in 1855, when just 5,000 of an expected 50,000 stamps arrived from Great Britain to its colony of British Guiana on the northern coast of South America. Shorted by 90%, the local postmaster found himself in a tough spot. If the colony's letters and newspapers were to be delivered, he was going to need some way to show the transaction of postage paid. So he decided to issue a provisional stamp to keep the mail moving until more postage could arrive from overseas. The only place that could create something with enough official cash to do the job in the 1850s British Guiana was the local newspaper the Royal Gazette. Using movable type, the printer of the Gazette produced a stock of one-cent stamps for newspapers and four-cent stamps for letters, attempting to imitate the design of government-issued postage, adding a stock illustration of the ship and the colony's Latin motto meaning we give and we ask in return. They were trying very crudely and on a different type of press in the middle of the colony as closely as they could to replicate the engraved stamps that were coming from Great Britain, says Piazza. The Gazette's printer's admiral imitation worked and the postmaster moved quickly to remove them from circulation once they'd served their purpose. Though Piazza cannot say exactly how long, he estimates they were in use about eight to ten weeks. Since the one-cent stamps were used for newspapers, which few people saved, as opposed to the four-cent stamps used for letters, most disappeared shortly after their usage. The existence of the one-cent magenta would likely have been forgotten altogether had it not been for a 12-year-old Scottish boy named Vernon Vaughan, living in British Guiana, who found one odd stamp among his uncle's papers in 1873. By this time the stamp had been postmarked and initialed by a local postal clerk, a common practice at the time to discourage counterfeiters, and appeared well used. The peculiar stamp hardly struck the boy as very valuable, so the budding philatelist soon sold it for a less than princely six shillings, about $10 in today's dollars, and bought a packet of foreign stamps that he apparently found more aesthetically appealing. Thus began the decades-long cross-continental journey of the one-cent magenta. After the initial sale, the stamp was picked up then passed along from one collector to the next, before it was spotted in 1878 by Count Philippe Rarontier von Ferrari, who was the owner of what has been called the most complete worldwide stamp collection ever to exist. Arguably the greatest stamp collector in history, Ferrari would have known how unusual the stamp was as soon as he saw it, so he snatched it up in a private sale. 
As more was learned of the stamp's provenance, it grew to become a prized item in Ferrari's collection, which upon his death in 1917 was donated to Berlin's Postal Museum. Following the World War I, the Count's collection and the one-cent magenta was seized by France as part of its war reparations. From there it passed to New York textile magnate and renowned stamp collector Arthur Hind, then to Australian engineer Frederick T. Small, then to a consortium run by Pennsylvania stamp dealer Erwin Weinberg. Its most recent owner who bought the stamp in 1980 was John E. Dupont, the chemical company heir, wrestling enthusiast and murderer portrayed by Steve Carell in last year's Oscar-nominated Foxcatcher. Before becoming interested in amateur wrestling, Dupont was a passionate philatelist and paid $935,000 for the one-cent magenta, purchasing it from Weinberg at an auction in 1980. Following Dupont's 2010 death in prison, it was put up for sale at auction and last summer sold for $9.5 million, four times more than any other single stamp has ever fetched. This recent sale helps explain the timing of the Postal Museum exhibition. Over the years, the curators at the museum have tried repeatedly to put the stamp on display, only to be turned down. But ahead of the one-cent magenta's latest auction, Representative Sotheby's reached out to the museum. They sought to use some of its scientific equipment, developed in the decades since the stamp's previous sale, in order to examine the elements of the item and to verify its authenticity. After granting this access, the Smithsonian left a request with Sotheby's to alert the auction's winners of the institution's interest in displaying the stamp. The new owner, shoe designer Stuart Weitzman, after discussions with the museum, agreed to an unprecedented three-year loan. This was quite a coup. Piazza estimates that of the almost 140 years since being discovered, the one-cent magenta has been on view for a period of less than one month. And philatelists the world over have yearned to see it. The last time I saw the stamp was, I think, in 1986, at the International Stamp Show in Chicago, says Ken Martin, Executive Director of the American Philatelic Society, who is eager to see it when it finally goes on display. He adds that he also expects the exhibit to help raise interest more generally in the National Postal Museum and stamp collecting more generally. Even collectors who are well-versed in this story have not seen the stamp in 35 years, Piazza adds, referring to a brief showing in 1987. And this exhibit, like the few earlier showings, lasted only a few days and took place at an exclusive stamp show closed to the public. The last and only time a non-philatelic audience got a look at the stamp was at the World's Fair in New York City in 1940. The stamp's strange history is detailed in the exhibit, held in the museum's William H. Gross Stamp Gallery. Its physical elements will also be examined, including what was recently learned about the stamp using the museum's cutting-edge forensic philately tools. For example, using special fluorescent lights filtered out the surface colouring, getting a clear view of the black ink below the magenta and any alterations made to the stamp after its printing. This allowed the Smithsonian to confirm that this is indeed the one-of-a-kind one-cent magenta 
not one of the less rare four cent versions that could have been altered to look like a one cent. Any alteration or change to the front of the stamp would fluoresce differently when looking at it under different light fixtures, says Piazza. An infrared filter allowed the Smithsonian's curators to better reveal markings made on the stamp over its journey of more than a century and a half. Among these are a postmark of April 5, 1856, reading Damara, a county in British Guiana. The handwritten initials EDW from the postal clerk Edmund D. White. Officials often made such marks at the time in an effort to discourage counterfeiting. And the inscriptions of British, Guiana and postage, one cent. Also on exhibit will be something that has never been displayed before, the back of the stamp. Visitors will see a number of owner's marks that reveal the different collections through which it has passed. There's an interesting layering that visitors will be able to see that could potentially be attributed to a wife of one collector trying to obliterate the owner's mark of the husband. So there's some interesting intrigue, says Sharon Klotz, director of the exhibitions for the museum, who planned how best to display this artefact. Our goal is to anticipate questions a general audience might have while still appealing to expert philatelists. She adds that the authenticity of the view, as naked and true as possible, is incredibly valuable. The travellers of old often told tales of fabled cities, phantom islands and exotic civilizations located deep in the unexplored reaches of the globe. These fanciful lands were usually disregarded as myths and legends, but a few found their way onto world maps and helped inspire some of history's most important journeys of discovery. From a fabled Christian empire in Asia to a supposed lost kingdom in Canada. Find out more about six of these most influential lands that never were. From the History.com website, six famous places that never existed. And this is written by Evan Andrews. The Kingdom of Prester John. For more than 500 years... Europeans believed a Christian king ruled over a vast empire somewhere in the wilds of Africa, India or the Far East. The myth first gained popularity in 1165 after the Byzantine and Holy Roman emperors received a letter, most likely a European forgery, from a monarch calling himself Prester John. The mysterious king claimed to serve as supreme ruler of the three Indies and all its 72 kingdoms. He described his realm as a utopia rich in gold, filled with milk and honey, and populated by exotic races of giants and horned men. Perhaps most important of all, Prester John and his subjects were Christians. Even the name Prester meant priest. 
a papal mission to find Prester John's court disappeared without a trace. But the myth of his kingdom took hold among Europeans. Crusading Christians rejoiced in the idea that a devout ruler might come to their aid in the struggle against Islam. And when Genghis Khan's Mongol hordes conquered parts of Persia in the early 1200s, many mistakenly credited Prester John's forces with the attack. The fantastical kingdom later became a subject of fascination for travellers and explorers. Marco Polo spun a dubious tale about encountering its remnants in northern China, and Vasco da Gama and other Portuguese mariners quested after it in Africa and India. While explorers did eventually discover a far-flung to Christian civilization in Ethiopia, it lacked the grandeur and the gold that Europeans had come to associate with Prester John's realm. By the 17th century, the legend had faded and the famed empire was dropped from most maps. Hi, Brazil. Long before Europeans ever stepped foot in the New World, explorers searched in vain for the island of High Brazil, a spectral atoll said to lurk off the west coast of Ireland. The story of the island most likely comes from Celtic legend. Its name means Isle of the Blessed in Gaelic, but its precise origins are unclear. High Brazil first started appearing on maps in the 14th century, usually in the form of a small circular island narrowly split in two by a strait. Many mariners accepted it as a real place until as recently as the 1800s, and it became popular fodder for myths and folk tales. Some legends described the island as a lost paradise or utopia. Others noted that it was perpetually obscured by a dense curtain of mist and fog and only became visible to the naked eye every seven years. Despite its fanciful reputation, High Brazil was widely sought after by Britain-based explorers in the 15th century. The navigator John Cabot launched several expeditions to track it down, and supposedly hoped to encounter it during his famous journey to the coast of Newfoundland in 1497. Documents from Cabot's time claim that previous explorers had already reached High Brazil, leading some researchers to argue that these mariners may have inadvertently travelled all the way to the Americas before Christopher Columbus. Thule, a subject of fascination for ancient explorers, romantic poets and Nazi occultists alike. Thule was an elusive territory supposedly located in the frozen North Atlantic near Scandinavia. Its legend dates back to the 4th century BC, when the Greek journeyman Pythias claimed to have travelled to an icy island beyond Scotland, where the sun rarely set and land, sea and air commingled into a bewildering jelly-like mass. Many of Pythias's contemporaries doubted his claims, but distant Thule lingered in the European imagination, and it eventually came to represent the northernmost place in the known world. Explorers and researchers variously identified it as Norway, Iceland and the Shetland Islands, and it served as a recurring motif in poetry and myth. 
The island is perhaps most famous for its connection to the Thule Society, a post-World War I esoteric organisation in Germany that considered Thule the ancestral home of the Aryan race. The Munich-based group counted many future Nazis among its guests, including Rudolf Hess, who later served as Deputy Führer of Germany under Adolf Hitler. El Dorado Beginning in the 16th century, European explorers and conquistadors were bewitched by tales of a mythical city of gold located in the unexplored reaches of South America. The city had its origin in accounts of El Dorado, the Gilded One, a native king who powdered his body with gold dust and tossed jewels and gold into a sacred lake as part of a coronation rite. Stories of the Gilded King eventually led to rumours of a golden city of untold wealth and splendour, and adventurers spent many years and countless lives in a fruitless search for its riches. One of the most famous El Dorado expeditions came in 1617, when the English explorer Sir Walter Raleigh travelled up the Orinoco River on a quest to find it in what is now Venezuela. The mission found no trace of the gilded city, and King James I later executed Raleigh after he disobeyed an order to avoid fighting with the Spanish. El Dorado continued to drive exploration and colonial violence until the early 1800s, when the scientists Alexandra von Humboldt and Amy Bonpland branded the city a myth after undertaking a research expedition to Latin America. St. Brendan's Island St. Brendan's Island was a mysterious incarnation of paradise, once thought to be hidden somewhere in the eastern Atlantic Ocean. The myth of the Phantom Isle dates back to Navigato Brendani, or Voyage of Brendan, a 1200-year-old Irish legend about the seafaring monk St. Brendan the Navigator. As the story goes, Brendan led a crew of pious sailors on a 6th century voyage in search of the famed promised land of the saints. After a particularly eventful journey on the open sea, the tale describes attacks by fireball-wielding giants and run-ins with talking birds. Brendan and his men landed on a mist-covered island filled with delicious fruit and sparkling gems. The grateful crew are said to have spent 40 days exploring the island before returning to Ireland. While there is no historical proof of St. Brendan's voyage, the legend became so popular during the medieval era that St. Brendan's Island found its way onto many maps of the Atlantic. Early cartographers placed it near Ireland, but in later years it migrated to the coasts of North Africa the Canary Islands and, finally, the Azores. Sailors often claim to have caught fleeting glimpses of the isle during the Age of Discovery, and it's likely that even Christopher Columbus believed in its existence. Nevertheless, its legend eventually faded after multiple search expeditions failed to track it down. By the 18th century, the famed promised land of the saints had been excised from most navigational charts. The Kingdom of Sagani 
The story of the mirage-like kingdom of Saguenay dates to the 1530s, when the French explorer Jacques Cartier made his second journey to Canada in search of gold and a northwest passage to Asia. As his expedition travelled along the St Lawrence River in modern-day Quebec, Cartier's Iroquois guides began to whisper tales of Saguenay, a vast kingdom that lay to the north. According to a chief named Donnacona, the mysterious realm was rich in spices, furs and precious metals and was populated by blonde, bearded men with pale skin. The stories eventually drifted into the realm of the absurd. The natives claimed the region was also home to races of one-legged people and whole tribes possessing no anus. But Cartier became taken by the prospect of finding Saguenay and plundering its riches. He brought Donnacona back to France, where the Iroquois chief continued to spread tales of a lost kingdom. Legends about Saguenay would haunt French explorers in North America for several years. But treasure hunters never found any trace of the mythical land of plenty or its white inhabitants. Most historians now dismiss it as a myth or tall tale, but some argue the natives may have actually been referring to copper deposits in the northwest. Still others have suggested that the Indian's kingdom of Saguenay could have been inspired by a centuries-old Norse outpost left over from Viking voyages to North America. From the littlethings.com, an article by Phil Mutz. These four million shells and 70 feet of secret tunnels remain a mystery after 179 years. And if you get a chance, visit the show notes for episode 111 of the Mysteries Abound podcast and click on the link to this article because there are lots of photographs of this quite amazing place. I love a good mystery. Some of my favourite historical mysteries still remain unsolved. How did Stonehenge get there? How were the pyramids built so perfectly? I love the excitement involved in trying to solve history's greatest puzzles. So when I stumbled upon this amazing mystery, my jaw hit the floor. Where did this amazing feat of craftsmanship and architecture come from? Who built it and how? And why would anyone go through the trouble of hiding something so enormous and elaborate? In 1835 in Margate, England, James Newlove was digging in his field when his shovel suddenly disappeared into a surprising hole in the ground. Completely taken aback, James decided to investigate this mystery hole. He tied a rope around his son Joshua's waist and handed him a candle and lowered him down to investigate. What Joshua discovered in this hole? Absolutely unbelievable. This incredible story and these mind-blowing photos delve into one of the most spectacular unsolved mysteries of the last two centuries. 
When Joshua was lowered into this mysterious hole, he was shocked to discover a winding underground tunnel, intricately covered with millions and millions of carefully placed shells. James and Joshua Newlove had stumbled upon the shell grotto. Where did this grotto come from, and how did it end up below a farmer's field? The mystery surrounding the Shell Grotto quickly made it one of the biggest tourist attractions around. James Newlove took full advantage of the marketing appeal of the Shell Grotto and opened it to the public in 1838. Part of its appeal came from its surprise appearance. These tunnels never appeared on any map and no one had ever heard stories of its construction. Visitors to the mysterious underground chambers were greeted by 4.6 million shells and 70 feet of winding tunnels. Ornate mosaics adorned every wall and were made from mussel, oyster, whelk, cockle and even a few rare queen conch shells. The unexplained nature of the shell grotto drew all kinds of people, including women performing a seance in the grotto in the 1930s. Today, visitors continue to climb down into the Shell Grotto to explore its chambers, but its origins still remain a mystery. In Europe during the 1700s, Shell Grotto construction was extremely popular among the powerful and the elite. But this Margate Shell Grotto was hidden beneath land that never formed the part of any rich person's estate, making its origins even more curious. Because of the scope of building such an undertaking, the people of Margate would certainly have noticed its construction materials and millions of shells being utilised in the middle of a farm field. But the lack of any knowledge on the part of the townspeople only adds to the mystery. Over the years, rumours surfaced that perhaps the Shell Grotto was a smuggler's cave used for hiding stolen treasure. But the grotto is located extremely far inland, away from the sea, making it hard to reach with booty. And even if it were a smuggler's cove, this wouldn't explain why it was so meticulously decorated in shells. Each of the shells was affixed to the walls of the grotto using one of five different types of mortar. Though beautiful, the shells appear extremely dirty. After years of lighting the shell grotto with gas lamps, the shells were left covered in layers of carbon deposit. Most of the shell grotto lies less than six feet below the surface underneath a layer of concrete. The concrete which was applied in the 1980s accidentally increased damp conditions in the grotto, causing damage to the incredible mosaics. As a result, a massive conservation effort has been underway to repair the damage to the shell grotto and to keep it preserved for years to come. To this day, the origin of the Shell Grotto of Margate continues to baffle historians. It remains one of the most beautiful mysteries of the past 200 years. How often are legends validated by archaeological finds? Not frequently, but when it happens, everyone starts believing. 
a little. From the mysticalfiles.com website. Seven-foot-tall hellhound skeleton found buried near ancient monastery in the UK. 500 years ago, the British Isles were terrorised by hellish black dogs. One of the most famous ones was called Black Shuck, a giant hellhound with burning red eyes and a matching attitude. An ancient legend tells that on the night of August 4, 1577, as a storm was raging in Blytheburg, Suffolk, villagers took shelter inside the Holy Trinity Church. Suddenly, a thunder burst open the doors and the monstrous dog barged in, snarling and growling. It set its bloodshot eyes upon a man and a boy whom he killed before fleeing the church when the steeple collapsed. The account is described in Reverend Abraham Fleming's book, A Strange and Terrible Wonder. This black dog, or the devil in such a likeness, God who knoweth all who worketh all, running all along down the body of the church with great swiftness and incredible haste among the people in a visible form and shape, passed between two persons as they were kneeling upon their knees and occupied in prayer as it seemed, wrung the necks of them both at one instant clean backward, and insomuch that even at a moment where they kneeled they strangely died. Blytheburg residents say his claw marks still adorn the church door, and according to some, the legend of Black Shuck was the inspiration for Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's The Hound of the Baskervilles. Awesome legend, but was there a grain of truth behind it? Last year, archaeologists who were excavating the ruins of Lyston Abbey in Suffolk, England, uncovered the remains of a giant dog that once stood seven feet tall on its hind legs. A veterinarian was called to the dig and estimated the mammoth dog weighed approximately 200 pounds when it lived. Could this skeleton have belonged to Black Shuck, the demon canine? And why was it buried on holy grounds? Was it ritualistic? Radiocarbon dating will show us when the dog lived and died, and if the time frame is right, the legend gets a reality boost. But even if it doesn't, the tale of Black Shuck will surely persist. And just in case you're interested, there is a photograph on this website of the dog's skeleton. world is filled with bizarre, unusual and sometimes not completely understood phenomenon. Most people reading this post will be familiar with the various stories of individuals who fall victim to accident or injury only to recover bearing seemingly supernatural gifts. From the HuffingtonPost.com An article by Alan Lennon Are human limitations self-imposed. 
In 2002, Jason Padgett, an average Joe Furniture Store employee, was mugged by two men and suffered severe brain injury. When he eventually recovered, he became obsessed with mathematics and physics and discovered that his vision allowed him to see the equations and formulas all around him. More recently, a woman who chose to remain anonymous detailed how, after suffering a concussion from a skiing accident, she was able to recall the most minute details of every place she had ever been or seen and replicate this into accurate maps and diagrams completely from memory. There are more such stories ranging from sudden mathematical genius to musical prowess or artistic abilities. This sudden onset of these abilities has been dubbed acquired savant syndrome. Further examples of bizarre medical enigmas activated by physical or psychological trauma. In August 2012, 25-year-old semi-professional footballer Rory Curtis from the UK suffered severe brain trauma in a car accident and fell into a coma. When he awoke six days later, he was convinced he was Matthew McConaughey, yes, the actor, and could suddenly speak fluent French, despite only having taken basic French lessons in school. Two years after the accident and sudden onset of his newfound linguistic skills, there were no signs of his powers waning. In a similar scenario, again in 2012, 22-year-old Australian Ben McMahon was involved in a horrific car accident which almost cost his life. When he awoke in hospital and opened his mouth to speak, he spoke and wrote fluent Mandarin. Ben did take Mandarin classes in school, but nowhere near close to fluency. It took another two to three days before he remembered how to speak English. When asked, Ben commented, I wasn't consciously thinking I was speaking Mandarin. It was just what came out, and it was what was most natural to me. Ben fully embraced his new gift and went on to host a Chinese game show and eventually moved to Shanghai to study commerce. There is a less pronounced version of this phenomenon where people develop the accent of another country or region but retain their own language. This has been dubbed foreign accent syndrome. These spontaneous abilities are not limited to the mind. We have all read those stories about women who seemingly gain superhuman strength to rescue a trapped child. This kind of sudden strength is referred to as hysterical strength due to it being commonly linked to life-threatening situations. A frequent explanation is that a sudden burst of adrenaline causes the increase in strength. According to Wikipedia, this kind of sudden superhuman strength is theoretically impossible and has yet to be proven. There are, however, well-documented, though albeit temporary, superhumans amongst us, maybe even in your own home. Newborn babies. Up until between the ages of 6 to 12 months, newborn babies are able to support their entire body weight by their chubby little grips alone, even using only one hand. Think about it, it's incredible. This super grip has a name, the Palmar Grasp. Obviously there is no safe way to prove this, so please don't start dangling babies. The good I think news is that it was already tested for us way back in 1891. 
one researcher tested the Palmar grasp on 60 different babies, having the newborns dangle from a walking stick. Almost all of the babies could perform this superhuman feat for up to 10 seconds. In one case, the baby lasted 2 minutes 35 seconds. One can only assume this was Clark Kent. Arguably, the cases described above, and these are only a few of many, blur the lines between what we know about the human condition and pure science fiction. But perhaps this is a good thing. If acquired savant syndrome is the equivalent of activating some form of psychological, neuron-induced trigger switch, who's to say whether the entire kaleidoscope of human ability isn't locked inside each and every one of us? When our parents gaze lovingly into our eager, inquisitive little eyes and tell us that we can be anything we want to be in life, what if that is literally true? We just have to find the trigger to unlock that seal of untapped potential. What if Usain Bolt had the speed cheat code activated from birth and all it took was recognition and nurturing? The saddest thing in this author's opinion is that theorising that every one of us has these hidden talents locked within us? What if we never discover what cheat code is activated in us? What if musicians, artists, authors and the entire spectrum of talented people across all professions are only those lucky enough to have stumbled across which trigger is set in the on position for them? Taking the thought process to its natural conclusion, does simply thinking that we can't do something make it a self-fulfilling prophecy? Would babies retain their incredible strength if the world didn't impose its limitations of what should be possible? There are certainly creatures in the animal kingdom whose strength far outweighs their stature. Ants, for example, can lift 20 times their own body weight. Would we die if we weren't taught that we are meant to have an average shelf life of 60 to 80 years? Break those shackles, defy your expiry date, and believe in the impossible. It is happening across the globe every day.
and from thecreepypasta.com. The Space Above the Closet. And this is credited to Emerald Lee. My room is tiny. Of course, that's because it was built for efficiency. I don't know if you've ever stayed in a dorm room or even seen one for that matter. But I can tell you after having lived in one for the past four years, they're built like stackable sardine containers. My five-star luxury quality, thousands of dollars per semester, individual dorm room measures in at a whopping 9 by 12 feet. I mean, it's practically a suite in the Hilton. You're right, sarcasm doesn't read easily in a diary. Diary? Journal? I'm a 22-year-old, grown-ass woman writing in a notebook. It doesn't matter what I call you, you're still a goddamn diary. Ha-ha! Goddamn diary. That's what I'll call you instead of dear diary, I mean. It'll be like my signature thing when anthropologists of the future find this and examine my precious words for cultural meaning. I'm sorry, I digress. Let's start again, shall we? Goddamn diary. As I was saying, my room is a tiny little shitbox. But that isn't the problem. Not really, anyway. Like I said, I've lived here for four years now. And if I'm being honest, it's not the size of my room that's bothering me. It's not really the room at all. Actually, it's the space above the closet. The space above the closet. Jesus, how ominous. Wow, I feel crazy even writing this. I sound like some kind of nutcase. But I don't know. I guess I feel like if I write it all down, everything will make sense and I won't have to worry about it anymore and I can just burn this stupid notebook and then I won't have to concern myself with ruminations about the anthropologists of the future or if I should call you a diary or a journal or a fucking papyrus leaf. Honestly, I just need to write this down because maybe, maybe on paper it will be sane-sounding. I guess I should start from the beginning. Okay, well, right. The space above the closet. Remember how I said my room is roughly 9 foot by 12 foot? Well, it's arranged so that one entire 12 foot long wall is used up by bookshelves and a small desk. And on the opposite wall there's a single bed. It's actually pretty comfy with a topper on it, honestly. Anyway, the closet is basically just a large wooden box that fills the space between the end of the bed and the wall where the door is. All of this is mostly irrelevant except I can't explain the space above the closet without a clear image of how the room is set up. Now the closet was built in such a way that it's not quite as tall as the room. As a result, there's a narrow space between the top of the closet and the ceiling. It's wide enough that you could store books there, I guess, or extra blankets or something, but nothing much more than that. I've never stored things there. It just never seemed right. I don't know why exactly. Well, now I have an idea. But when I first moved in, I just felt sort of like it was an inappropriate spot to keep any junk. This, of course, is deeply, deeply bizarre, since I'm probably the least tidy person in the entire universe. No empty space is safe from the wrath of my book and DVD hoarding. Regardless, I never felt right putting anything above that closet. 
My first three years in this room passed without incident. I would live in it for both school semesters, pack up my things in April after exams, go home for the summer, return inevitably to the same exact room because the housing office at my university has zero interest in making things interesting. School would go on as school does. My room would get messier. I would accumulate more books and the stacks of written the night before essays would get higher. Oh, by the way, I am a major in history. Philosophy minor. Engineering dropout. I know, go me, I'm training to be a well-read, clever intellectual. I'll be happy to discuss Kantian ethics with you between grand, non-fat, mocha, whatever the fuck orders. Point being, I own a lot of books and I write a lot of essays. Anyway, one day a few weeks ago, I was in the middle of a very important Netflix binge when an annoyingly persistent knock on the door interrupted my nearly nine-hour marathon of The X-Files. I panicked, of course, being me. I had completely forgotten the resident assistant was supposed to be by for room inspections and my room was a certified disaster. I mean full throttle, shark at NATO, 3D, empty wine bottles, stacks of crummy dishes, probably tiny dead mouse bodies in the heat register disaster. And I mean, cut me some slack, because I had also just finished slogging through a backlog of something like 30,000 words worth of essays, and all I wanted to do was eat Nutella toast and lust after Scully's hair colour. So sue me. My immediate reaction was just to take the hit. Let the RA come in, give me a dirty look and then write me up for uncleanliness but my deeply buried, ancient, evolutionary, uterus-owning, homemaker sense must have kicked in, and I have to say, I pulled off some kind of the flash shit in a moment, and when the RA came in, she just said, Cool. See you later. And that was it. No uncleanliness sanction for me. But to get back to the point... When I was in the middle of my miracle tidying frenzy, I didn't have time to be worried about the space above the closet and my uneasiness about putting things there. All I knew was that I had a lot of dirty dishes that needed a hiding place and the closet space was it. So I stacked a couple of bowls and some plates on top of each other and I shoved them as far towards the wall on top of the closet as my arm would reach so they weren't visible. All the rest of the clutter, including the nearly empty wine bottles, got spirited away into drawers under my bed. And that, kids, is how all my socks got purple stains on them. Truth be told, I actually forgot about those dishes on top of the closet for a while. When the RA left, I went straight back to my X-Files binge, and I didn't remember the dishes until the following morning when I woke up. Oh, okay, it was the afternoon. Don't judge me. Well, luckily that same day, an urge struck me to tidy my room. Actually, tidy it. Maybe with exams approaching, I felt like a clean room would make for a clean mind. Ha, right. In any case, I wanted a clean room. While I was deciding where to begin, I suddenly remembered the dirty dishes above my closet and the thought that washing them would put me off to a good start. So I climbed on top of my bed reached all the way back to where I had pushed the stack of dishes and felt, and felt. I was confused. I stood on my toes and looked into the crevice. I even got a flashlight and inspected the space. 
although that was unnecessary because I could see all the way to the wall as it was. I shook my head, perplexed, wondering if I had already cleaned the dishes. Perhaps I had picked up a new habit, sleep cleaning. As convenient as that would be, it seemed an unlikely explanation. Sleep cleaning or not, whatever the explanation, the dirty dishes were undoubtedly no longer above the closet. I plonked down on my bed, thoroughly weirded out. Then I looked around my room, wondering if maybe I had already retrieved the dishes and simply forgotten about it. I mean, maybe too much Netflix really does burn holes in the brain. Who knows? But I didn't see the dishes anywhere. I checked my drawers too, and besides my newly wine-stained socks, no dishes were to be found. I left my room and padded barefoot down the hallway to the little communal kitchen where I looked through every cupboard, thinking maybe I had imagined the dirty dishes entirely. But none of my personally labelled plates and bowls were around. Oh, and by the way, you'd be stupid not to label things at university. That shit isn't just for summer camp. Labelling is serious business. I meandered back to my room, all the way quite literally scratching my head at the case of the missing dishes. If I were Mulder, I would have been thrilled about the missing dishes. An X-file in the making. But instead I was just confused. So I did what every good university student does when a problem can't be solved. I decided to take a nap. Of course, as a fourth-year student, I am required to occasionally appear responsible. As such, I set an alarm on my phone so that I wouldn't sleep longer than half an hour, laid down on my bed, took one last weirded-out look at the spot above the closet, and closed my eyes. Only to be woken by a huge crashing sound fifteen minutes later... I jolted awake, smacking my head on the wall beside my bed and frantically looking around for the source of the noise. In that moment of panic, I swear, I saw a quick shadowy movement above the closet, but that could have been my imagination. What really mattered, though, what really caught my attention was the pile of broken dishes on the floor beside the foot of my bed. A pile that for everything in the world looked just like it was in the right spot to have been shoved from the top of the closet. What's more though, is that although the two bowls and few plates were in shards, they were all impeccably clean. Not a crumb or butter smear or layer of dried milk to be found. I know you must be wondering, goddamn diary, how does a person rationalise such an event? Well, let me tell you, as a proud engineering dropout turned arts student and certified horror sci-fi lover, a vague knowledge of dark matter theory, combined with a philosophical mindset and a propensity for concocting creepy tales, does not always a rational person make. Luckily, that same combination of characteristics meant I could refrain from spiralling instantly into crippling fear. I thought to myself, Okay, so I just experienced some seriously weird physics anomaly. Generally creepy shit. But this is my zone. I totally got this. In fact, my first instinct was to ask myself, what horror movie is this from and how does it end? 
because I was sure I must have managed to produce some paranormal activity using only the power of my imagination, a la the apparition, or a la the Philip experiment, if you want to go real life on that shit. I meant if anyone could do it, it would be me. I've seen enough bad Hollywood ghost movies. But I can't deny that I was a little bit freaked out. At some point my irrationality did kick back in and I decided, stupidly, that I must have just somehow not seen the dishes earlier and they were, like, on the very edge or something and they just fell off the top of the closet. I ignored the fact that such an explanation made little to no sense and that it still didn't explain the fact that all the dish shards appeared to be spotless but the tenuous explanation made just as much sense as me magically creating a creepy dish-cleaning, top-of-the-closet-dwelling ghost with the power of my mind. Then my phone alarm went off, and that of course startled me. A girl just can't catch a break when dishes are involved. Needless to say, I tracked down a neighbour who owned a broom, cleaned up the pathetic little pile of impeccably clean but irreparably shattered glass and went back to ignoring the space above the closet. But I had trouble sleeping that night. And the next. And the next. I had trouble sleeping for a week after that incident because I couldn't stop thinking about the shadowy crevice and the incident with the dishes. So a week and a half after what I now call the dishy day... On a Saturday morning when most other 22-year-olds were probably nursing hangovers, I decided to run some experiments on the space above the closet. The first test I did was to place a piece of paper, just a simple blank piece of printer paper with nothing written on it and no marks. I placed it on top of the closet and pushed it as far back towards the wall as I could. Then I sat on my bed, started the stopwatch app on my phone and waited. At 14 minutes and 22 seconds, the piece of paper was shoved from the top of the closet by some unseen force. Before it even landed on the ground, I had bolted to my feet atop the bed to catch the mysterious culprit in action. By this point I was thinking, maybe rats were to blame. Again, unlikely story. But the crevice was empty. Disappointed, I retrieved the piece of paper from the ground and examined it. Nothing had changed. No marks had appeared. It was not torn. In fact, it wasn't even wrinkled or creased. I resolved to increase my experimenting. I decided the blank paper was kind of like a control and that I would use the same sheet at the end of my experimenting to try and make the whole stupid process a little bit more legit. So I set aside the first sheet of paper and grabbed another. This time I wrote something on it. Just my name in large black letters, all caps, across the middle of the page. Ripley. Yes, I am named after Sigourney Weaver's character in Alien. Complaints go to my mother. Once again I placed the paper on top of the closet as far back as I could reach, started the stopwatch app and waited. This time I stayed standing. I stayed standing for 23 minutes and 11 seconds, waiting for that paper and it didn't so much as flutter. Exasperated, I flopped down on my bed. Two seconds later, the paper flew off the top of the closet. I scrambled to retrieve it from the floor, and when I did, I was disappointed to find that it had not been altered. Not to be discouraged so easily, however, 
I decided to add something to the writing and try again. Hello, my name is Ripley. Once again I positioned the paper atop the closet and started the stopwatch. At exactly 13 minutes, the paper fluttered down from the crevice to the ground. It was writing side down when I retrieved it. I turned it over. My writing was gone. And when I say gone, I mean gone without a trace. I had written my message in permanent marker, and not a single spot was left on the page. Not so much as a faint shadow of lettering. In tiny, neat, pencilled freehand, however, on the very bottom of the page were two words. I know. Well, I nearly completely lost my shit. I had no idea what to do. Prior to conducting my little experiment, I had every intention of continuing until I could figure out what was going on with my closet crevice. But those two little words freaked me out so much that I simply grabbed my coat and my purse, threw on some shoes and went for a walk to clear my head. Halfway round the block I realised I had to go back. I had to dig deeper. I asked myself, what would Dana Scully do? Well, she would investigate the occurrence as if it were a rationally explainable phenomenon, until something undeniable led her to believe otherwise. But Fox Mulder, well, what would Mulder do? I bet if the X-Files were set in 2015, the first thing Mulder would do would be to Google paranormal phenomenon relating to closets. So that's what I did. I went home immediately, and all the while deliberately avoiding any glances towards the mysterious closet space. I typed into Chrome, Paranormal Closet. Some results came up. The first result was a site dedicated to helping people come out of the closet by comparing the experience of realising homosexuality to that of experiencing the paranormal. I mean, I've never had to come out of the closet, but the article was pretty convincing. There was also a Reddit thread entitled, Old Man in My Closet. I didn't click on it. A few YouTube videos, presumably shoddy attempts at special effects, showing paranormal closet occurrences. But none of them resembled my invisible closet-top-dwelling companion, um, whatever. After a few more attempts at various internet searches, I just gave up, resolving that I was on my own with this one and leaning heavily towards the Dana Scully approach. I would explore every option before writing it all off as a personally experienced X-File phenomenon. I would continue to experiment with the closet space, exchanging letters with the mysterious void. Retrospectively, maybe that wasn't such a good idea. Maybe the Mulder approach would have allowed me to forget about the dish day and those two words, I know. Maybe Mulder would have just been able to chalk it up to a bizarre, fascinating experience and then let it go. Move on. But no, I decided to be Scully. I decided to push it. I grabbed the piece of paper with I know written on it and decided to keep it as proof. For everyone else, it would just look like two words on a piece of paper. But to me, it was solid evidence of my experience. I didn't want to risk losing it. I picked a third piece of paper from my shelf and wrote on it. What's your name? I delivered the paper to the top of the closet, sat on my bed and started the stopwatch. At ten minutes and thirty-five seconds, the paper floated from the top of the closet. This time directly onto the bed instead of the floor. Not important it read. 
my writing was gone. I decided to use the same piece of paper for the next question. Directly under the closet being's writing, I scribbled, Are you real? At six minutes and fifteen seconds, the paper landed on my bed, blank once again except for the answer, Evidently so. I thought to myself, Ah, so this closet is a smart-ass then, and scribbled my next question. If you're real, why can't I see you? At the 4 minute and 21 second mark, the paper landed with the response, Ever see gravity? I wrote, Touché, and nothing else, wondering what the response would be. After only 3 minutes and 51 seconds, the paper flooded back to me. Do ask something interesting, please. A smart-ass indeed. How are you doing this? The response came at the two-minute mark. Ours is a special ability. Ours? There's more than one of you? After only one minute and three seconds, the answer was, Unnecessary question. Ask another. I suddenly felt anxious. I had been at ease for most of the process. Odd as that may sound, but the clear eagerness of the demand, ask another, gave me pause. Should I continue? Was I getting into something dangerous? I began the process unconvinced that even one of the strange closet entities existed, and now I was being told by some invisible force that there may be multiple unseen beings living on top of my closet, communicating with me through a piece of paper from which my own writing kept magically disappearing. I actually felt afraid. But then I sent another message. I stupidly sent another message. Who are you? The answer this time was almost instantaneous. I barely had time to start the stopwatch app before the paper floated off the closet and landed before me. What I read there made no sense. It seemed such a bizarre answer to the question. And while I was staring at the page, trying to get my brain to work, I felt a building sense of anxiety creeping from my toes to my ears, a tingling sense of danger building in my spine. Too late. First letter of each sentence. Read the solution aloud, please. I'll tell you who I am if you complete this task. It was the longest sentence the closet had returned. It was also the weirdest. Stupidly, I ignored my sense of mounting panic, desperate to complete the task and solve the mystery. I am Dana Scully. I am Dana Scully. I kept chanting in my head. First letter of each sentence. I used to love these silly puzzle games. I racked my brain to remember the entire conversation, but after some scribbling, I recalled all of it. Hello, my name is Ripley. I know. What's your name? Not important. Are you real? Evidently so. If you're real, why can't I see you? Ever seen gravity? Touché. Do ask something interesting, please. How are you doing this? Ours is a special ability. Ours? There's more than one of you. Unnecessary question, ask another. Who are you? Too late. But when I was finished, I isolated all the first letters and the message didn't make any sense. H-I-W-N-A-E-I-E-T-D-H-O-O-U-W-T. Total nonsense. Then it dawned on me. 
Maybe just use every first letter of the responses. After all, if there's a hidden message, how could I have had any part in it if I didn't know it in the first place? I arranged all of the letters from the closet's response into a line. My heart sank. A lump rose in my throat. My palms started to sweat. I-N-E-E-D-I-O-U-T. I need out. For some insane reason, even though the message was already creepy enough that I should have stopped, that I should have torn up the page and gone straight to the housing office to switch rooms, some insane visceral urge to complete the task and a sweeping desire to solve the mystery overwhelmed me and I read out loud, I need out. The room instantly fell eerily silent. It seemed a vacuum had formed in my little dorm room. Simultaneously, all the air seemed to be sucked from my lungs and a freezing cold seized me by the shoulders as I watched a swirling shadow gather in the space above the closet and spill over the edge into the room, spiralling and creeping towards me like an inky fog. I couldn't breathe, I couldn't move, I couldn't think. I could only sit there, watching the fog approach me and engulf first my legs, then my torso, then my neck, and soon everything was blackness and burning cold and indecipherable, painful silence. Then I woke up here, in this void. Only this little notebook was here when I opened my eyes. I can't see my body, and I don't appear to have any corporeal form, but I still feel like myself. And I can somehow write this, and I can somehow see. When I woke up, I saw out of my bedroom from above, from on top of the closet. I saw a thing that looks like me, that looks just like Ripley. When it sensed that I was awake, the thing that looks like me climbed onto my bed and peered into the space above the closet where I am trapped, and said in a voice that sounds just like mine, but with different, stiffer inflections, Hello, my name is Ripley, that's who I am. Now you have your answer. You're welcome for the notebook. I wanted to respond, wanted to yell that, No, I am Ripley. You're not Ripley. You aren't me. I don't want this stupid notebook. I want you to let me go. But I couldn't. I can only write and presumably push things off the top of the closet or make them disappear temporarily or erase things. And now that thing from the top of the closet is walking around as me and it's going to keep up the pretense So I'm writing this tale down, and maybe someday, when the fake Ripley leaves and someone else moves into this room, I will push this book off the top of the closet. And maybe that someone will start reading, thinking it's all a bizarre mishap, and maybe they'll become interested in my story. Maybe they'll be a thrill-seeker, willing to test the boundaries. Maybe they'll be a curious fan of the X-Files. Maybe they'll want to talk to me. Maybe they'll tell me their name, but I'll already know it. And my task will be to lure them, to trick them into saying aloud that I, I need out. The music for today's podcast came from the musicalley.com. The bandwidth is supplied by the people at TalkShoe at TalkShoe.com. 
The show notes are kept at the Origins podcast website, www.origins.info. Don't forget we have a Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Paul Rexy, or just click on the link at the show notes. And I'd like to thank these people for helping to provide some support for the podcast. Thank you to our subscribers, David Glassie, Sean Yarnell, Jeff Chapman, Scott McClory and Luke Hewson. And thank you to Paul Gonzalez, Elizabeth Rucker and Robert Kreibel for giving a donation to the podcast. Your help is greatly appreciated, everyone. I know it's been some time since the last podcast, but we've been flat out at the Botanic Gardens this year. I've been working five to six days a week because it's our busy time of the year being winter. Bit strange if you live in a cold country, but winter is the best time to come to visit Queensland. It's cool, it's nice, it's pleasant. Not too hot, not too cold, just right. So until next time, everyone, whether it be a Mysteries Abound or an Origins, and probably will be an Origins, this is Paul saying... Bye for now and keep well, everyone. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.